Welcome to the Rope Walker Podcast, the monthly podcast from the Corsicana Artist and Writer Residency, featuring intimate conversations with our residents. My name is Alicia Nicole Harris. I'm a poet and the residency's director of public programs. I'm also this week's host. Today we're in conversation with writer in residence for January 2021, award-winning playwright and historian Kate Mully. Kate has studied and practiced dramaturgy in the U.S., Shanghai, and London. From The Tudor, her play about a law student paying for school by selling her underwear, to The Grey Lady, a historical work about a female soldier in the Civil War, her works interrogate the complicated relationships between gender and power. Kate has spent her time in Corsicana researching for her new play based on the life of 17th century Puritan Anne Hutchinson and her effect on the language of religious freedom in America. She is also working on a book about the history of sex on stage. In this episode, Kate discusses gender, female rage, and residency life in Corsicana. You can learn more about Kate Molly online at CorsicanaResidency.org. And with that, let's get to it. Religion, sex, and politics are all making an appearance in your plays and in your work, and those are all the things that we're taught that we shouldn't talk about over the dinner table. So talk to me about what's of interest to you in sort of the merger of religion and politics and the role of sex and gender in that. Yeah, I um, I think it's just something I've always been really fascinated by, and I don't I don't think I could like pinpoint what what that comes from. Um, I did grow up going to church every Sunday, um, and I went to an all-women's school from fifth through twelfth grade. Mm-hmm. So I think that something about the role of girls in an all-girls school is very different from um, a school where that is not the case. And I think that um, the more that I've thought about that as I've gotten older, the more I realize that that has had a lot to do with what I'm writing about. Um, Yeah. And I think that um, for a while that kind of didn't interest me. And then I... I sort of went back to writing about gender um, and politics and sort of where those things merge. Um, Yeah, what was the first work that you began sort of re-engaging those topics in? um, I, yeah, I wrote a play called The Tudor um, that is about a woman who is a law school dropout who is tutoring the SAT and selling her used underwear online. And, um, okay. That like, I don't, I don't remember. I think I read an article about selling used underwear online and I was like, what an, what a interesting side hustle. Mm -hmm. It seems like it would be easy to do. And then I actually like thought about the admin involved and I was like, you know, I don't actually think you'd make enough money for it to be worth it because you do, you can't, clients like demand certain lengths of time that you wear the underwear. And so you can't really wear, you can't really get more than like four pairs a week. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it actually didn't add up as like a money-making scheme. And so you, so you really had to love it 
I learned. Um, wow. The research involved in that. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, and that, so then I was like, well, I'm not going to do it, but like I could write a play about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, um, that was probably when I started really getting back into that kind of uh, exploration of what, where sex and um, sex and like commodity sort of come okay. together. Okay, okay. So this work that you're making right now about sort of exploring Anne Hutchinson, what does sort of her story represent? Maybe you could talk a little bit um, about her story and sort of the, the problems that you're trying to elucidate in your new play and how she sort of emerged on your, on your stage. Yeah. So Anne Hutchinson was, um, was born in England and in 1591 and um, moved to London as a sort of, I think, like nine-year-old maybe. Um, and and was there, like, was in London for a lot of really sort of formative political things. Her father was a minister who had been um, kind of removed from the church, and so he taught his daughters to resist authority and to read and to do a lot of things that mm-hmm. women weren't expected to do back then, um, certainly women in the sort of Puritan world. Um, and then she moved back to the town she was born and married um, a sort of like long time sweetheart of hers. And they got really involved in the in this church. And um, she really believed that like, this, it's like, this is such a strange thing to explain because I've had to get my head around it. But she really believed that um, God's grace did not depend on what you did in life or not. It depended on sort of like what I would view as like arbitrary, um, like chosenness. Um, and, and if you thought that you were chosen, then you probably weren't because you thought it. But if you had like assurances from God, then maybe you were. So she believed that God was sort of speaking to her and that she was... Uh, at the very least, able to communicate enough with God that she believed that she had God's grace. And that wasn't exactly what people believed in her church. Mm -hmm. Um, So Mm -hmm. eventually she and her husband and their many, many children moved to Boston to follow a minister of hers. Um, And then she started kind of holding circles of... um, where she would talk about the Bible, where she mm-hmm. would talk about God, where she sort would... Sort of like a Bible study or something, but she was leading it. Yeah, uh-huh. and um, and women weren't doing that. And originally it was just for women, and then the women started bringing their husbands. Um, and the religious authorities didn't like that she was doing this. And um, eventually she was put on trial and um, censured and then eventually excommunicated from Massachusetts with her family. And, um, and there was something when I, I mean, I, I am from Boston, so I mm-hmm. must have 
Yeah. She must have been in my radar, on my radar for a while when I was growing up. But there was something about reading about her a couple of years ago that made me think that she really represented something that is that feels like it's relevant today in a way that um, I was sort of surprised that I hadn't seen more about her. Okay. So do you think that she's sort of in this movement, um, you know, post the Women's March, and we're talking about, you know, the the standing up for the dignity and the stories um, of women. Um, And that's sort of like a, a, a... a theme in the current zeitgeist, especially after after Trump. But do you feel like she, Anne Hutchinson, would have sort of understood herself as like making a, a feminist point? Or do you feel like she was just, that's just what she thought and she was just explaining her beliefs and was standing up for it? How much of, like from reading her story, how much of it for you is about, you know, this, um, her personal sort of convictions versus like the role that she was occupying as a woman or are those things sort of unable to be sort of separated in your mind? I, th- I, think, it, I think it is hard to separate them. I think that the, re- the reaction to her was absolutely because she was a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think that the, in most cases, like men who were doing similar things were not, um, were not as negatively affected, um, were not excommunicated quite in the same way. Um, I think, but I don't, I don't think that, I mean, there's sort of no way to say like she was making a feminist statement. Um, But I think that, I think that historically, when we look at um, historical female figures who, who do things like this, they're usually, the thing that links them is that they had fathers who believed that they should be educated. Wow. Um, yeah, and I think that that, I think that for her, it was just that she was given the opportunity that a lot of women mm-hmm. wouldn't have been when she mm-hmm. was younger. And so she was educated mm-hmm. um, and she did have this sort of a conviction in herself. Um, so I think that that is the thing that for her um, made her do what she did mm-hmm. because she had had that education from her father and and he was such a he was so um convinced that he had been wronged and like he he like wrote this whole book about his life and then like taught it to his daughters um so i think she also just like had that in her in her blood as well yeah that's a very interesting and sort of nuanced observation about the role that fathers play in sort of this you know, educating and opening up possibilities for young women to be able to say, oh, I can do this. I am qualified to do this. I'm going to bring my full faculties to whatever I'm doing. And yeah, that's, that's um, super interesting. So while you've been in Corsicana, mm-hmm. you've been working on this play or what has your time been researching? Yeah. Yeah, I've been reading a lot. So mm-hmm. I've been reading um, about Anne Hutchinson and then also a lot about um, like contemporary anger and rage. Um, a lot of the books I've been reading have been about women's anger in particular, or women's rage in particular. Um, but then there was also a book I was reading about um, where sort of like disenfranchisement and anger align and the ways in which um, 
like far right lone wolf Mm. white supremacists have more in common with um, ISIS Mm. suicide bombers than than they would like to believe Um, and that it all comes from sort of the same lack of feeling like they have power because of the like social structure that exists today and and this book is sort of saying that that came out of the enlightenment that like when everyone had their hierarchical place people didn't feel as unsettled in the world um which was a very interesting book to be reading like this month in January 2021. Um, it came out right, I think he wrote it before Trump was elected. Okay, and what, what's the name of the book? Um, it's called Age of Anger. Age of Anger. Yeah. Um, ah, Age of Reason, Age of Anger. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, um, and that was sort of not, like, not helpful necessarily for the play, um, but just sort of happened to be the right book to be reading this mm-hmm. month. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I've been thinking a lot about sort of like how those things all tie together. And I've been thinking a lot about, um, so one of the things about Anne Hutchinson that is kind of bizarre is that she, many of her descendants are like famous politicians today or like have been famous politicians. So like, uh, FDR is a yeah. descendant and, um, Mitt Romney is a descendant, the um, both Bush presidents. Um, And so I've been thinking about her descendants and sort of what that means, like her, her, her blood descendants. Mm -hmm. And then the people that like, I might consider her like philosophical Mm. descendants and sort of like who those, um, how they differ. Um, And, and like who, who is sort of related to her in that sort of way. Yeah. Um, and, but I haven't written anything <laughs> yet. Though I did make a list. Um, I, I had a playwriting teacher once um, who does this, has this like, great exercise for starting a play. And um, part of it includes like a list of elements that need to be in the play. And so I spent a day just sort of like looking out the window mm. and coming up with elements for the play. Um, and then looking around my room and sort yeah. of coming up with elements for the play. And that, and so I have that list and like eventually I will use that list and sort of like all of those things will be in the play. Um, so that was like, that's, some, that's a way in which I know that like being here yeah. will inform the play. Can you, maybe, can you give us a preview of some of maybe the objects or the, the scenes that sort of yeah, um, you picked up from Corsicana. The, yeah. um, a water tower, um, a a clothespin, um, a church steeple, uh, an American flag. I think I put a Texan flag on the list, so we'll see how that fits in. Um, and then, like, you know, like a, a tree with no leaves on it. Like, I think a bird is on the list. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a ladybug on my desk, and so there's going to be a ladybug in the play. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. Those details are just, you know, I think 
I'd love to hear you talk about it, but the, the work of having sort of a conceptual idea in your mind and then bringing it out. I imagine research is a huge part of you developing the character, you developing the scene, but also sort of just that passive sort of taking in your environment around you and letting that sort of affect the work. So I, I want to ask another question. Um, talk to me about this book about representing, that you're writing on representing sex on stage. How did that come to be? It is, so I, um, it's, a, it's a weird story. So I, when I, it's, sort of, it's like a three-part story, which many, I think many of my stories are. Um, so while I was a playwriting fellow in Shanghai when I was in grad school, when I was in, at the Shanghai Theater Academy for uh, like two months. And um, when I was there, I was talking with my classmate about, we were talking about whether or not we would want to do PhDs. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, we were in our second year of grad school. We liked school. We liked being playwriting fellows at a Chinese theater academy. Um, we were a little scared of like what would happen after we graduated. And I think the idea of a PhD seemed like a interesting thing to think about. So we were then sort of brainstorming what our PhDs would be if we did them. Mm -hmm. And I think, I don't know if it was my idea or his idea, but the idea for me was um, sex on stage, it was sort of like exploring um, the, the performance of sex on stage. Um, and then I stopped thinking about it. Like I decided, I think I just was like, I'm not going to do a PhD. And then um, I was in London in the summer of 2019. And I had lunch with an old professor. And he was telling me about how his students were seeing a lot of shows in London. And they were really concerned about the sex in the plays and how it was being performed and whether the actors were safe. Um, and he found this fascinating um, because that had never been a conversation that students had had with him about plays in previous years when mm -hmm. he had taken them to the theater. And, um, and I remember like walking across a park and thinking like, oh, like, I could do a PhD in London. <laughs> and I could do, and I could, this could be the thing I do. And then, um, and my parents were living in London at the time, so it was like, mm -hmm. I could live with my parents in London, and I could do a PhD, and like, PhDs are so much faster in London, and I could do it in like two years, and then I'd be a doctor, and wouldn't that be great? Um, and then that, and then like, I talked to a, former boss of mine who has a doctorate and she was like unless you want people telling you you're wrong all the time I would urge you not to do that like just write the book better audience larger audience yeah. less time yeah. and you get to write it how you want to write it yeah so then over the summer um I got an email from a woman who is the editor of a series of like short Routledge books about dramaturgy. And she was looking for pitches um, for this series. And um, I forwarded it to a friend who 
does have a PhD in theater. And I was like, should I pitch my <laughs> sex on stage idea? And she was like, yeah, I'll help you with the proposal. Um, so, so I've sent it and she responded positively. And then we sort of like worked on a larger proposal. Um, and then she sent it to the publisher and they got it peer reviewed. And then I got a contract. Amazing. Um, exciting. Exciting. Yeah. Um, and, and hard to research during a pandemic I've learned. Mm. Um, there's a lot of stuff I need from libraries that I can't get. <laughs> so, um, like I want to be able to watch a lot of these shows yeah, and absolutely. the archival footage is, um, like only in libraries. So, um, but it's been interesting to come up with what the book is beyond just like a sentence, <laughs> you know? I mean, I just have so many questions. Like, I'm like, when did sex on stage first emerge? Like, was it always just gestured at? Or like, what's the history of that? And, you know, oh, just so many questions. Yeah, well, so so because the, because the books are short, um, this one will only be focusing on contemporary theater. Okay. So it's basically from like 2000 onwards. Okay. Um, which was not initially what I... Um, like I, my, my thought was like from, uh, the sexual revolution to now, mm -hmm. right? Like from sexual revolution to me too, would be sort of like a span of time that I thought would be a pretty like clear, mm -hmm. um, yeah. and then sort of looking at how, like how everything changed. Um, but instead it's basically the last 20 years, um, which is still, <laughs> you know, from like the Bush years to now is sort of an interesting, um, looking at like societal views on sex and and it's actually like there are books from there are plays from the late 90s that are it's like might as well have been written in the late 60s mm -hmm. um so but it is interesting to think about where where you do actually see sexual acts on stage versus where you don't um and how that like what that represents and why we're seeing it. Um, so that's a lot of what, and then who's, who's writing these plays yeah. and how is the sex being represented? Um, because sex has been in plays like all the way back to the Greeks. Um, and so, and it's all, and like, you know, like plays like Lysistrata are all about, are all about sex and who mm -hmm. controls sex. Um, so there's certainly a long history of plays that discuss it. Yeah. And then the question is like, what are we seeing? And and what's pornographic? Yeah, exactly. That that was the question that I you know, especially like uh, after after I'm a Game of Thrones fan. Yeah. So after watching Game of Thrones and just being like. I'm pretty sure I'm watching pornography, yeah. you know, and then thinking about, well, it feels, I would imagine that it feels differently on television or on the screen versus like when you're in a theater with people, um, it's the screen sort of serves as this de facto barrier, but on stage, there is no real barrier that way. And so I would imagine it comes across and it has to be written differently or perhaps not. 
Yeah. I mean, there's this very interesting thing where if you're watching, if you're in the same room as two people simulating sex, then you're like, you're far away from them because they're on stage and you're mm -hmm. in the audience, but you're still like in the same room. Yeah. And so you know it's not real. Mm -hmm. And then when you're watching something on your screen, it's, it's supposed to look real. Mm -hmm. In yeah. a way that with theater, like you, you have that suspension of disbelief in a different way. Like you're, whenever you're watching theater, you're like, these are actors, right? Absolutely. And I think we don't have that same relationship to film and TV. Um, so I, th I think some of the best um, examples of sex on stage are um, more choreographed. Mm. Um, aren't necessarily completely representational of sex, but you're sort of, you know that that's what's happening. You're just mm -hmm. not, it doesn't look like what you think sex looks like. Um, because there always is that thing as an audience. And I think so much of the time, there are so many plays now that I'm reading where you can read a stage direction about what the sex is supposed to be, but that's not necessarily what the audience is seeing when they're seeing it. And I think that's where it becomes really tricky um, because the playwright might have a very clear sense of what's happening, mm -hmm. but translating that into like actors doing something yeah. is a very different yeah. experience. So there has been this rise in intimacy choreography um, in the last decade or so, yeah. like really more in the last five years. Um, which I think helps helps the actors, helps the playwrights, and helps the directors really sort of figure out what um, what the actors are comfortable doing, yeah. and and to be another set of eyes on like what what it looks like for an audience member to see what's happening. So fascinating! I can't wait to read this book. I can't wait. I'm like I, I'm so excited. Yeah, I mean it's funny because it's like it's. I haven't done academic writing in a long time. And so even trying to figure out how, if I know how to do that anymore is, uh, is hard. But um, I'm just trying to write words <laughs> and then I will edit them and then my editor will edit them and it'll be fine. It will absolutely, yeah. it'll be more than fine. Yeah, but, but it, yeah, it's exciting to have something that feels like an actual long-term project that I know will happen. Like, as long as I do it, it will happen. Yeah, absolutely. Corsicana Artist and Writer Residency is a community-funded nonprofit organization supporting the production of art and literature in historic sites in Corsicana, Texas. Find out who's currently in the studio on our website, CorsicanaResidency.org. Right now, we're talking to playwright, historian, and January's resident, Kate Mully. So you, you, you mentioned something, and I'm going to go back to it. You mentioned something about education and gender. And I read one of your plays called Trash, and sort of about the um, a high school teacher who sort of takes advantage of his power over these um, young girls at this at these elite boarding schools um and sort of a story that transpires around that yeah i um 
I read an article about um, these teachers who would serially date students um, and then get sort of passed from school to school and the, the schools didn't, didn't like, you know, they, they would, they would fire them or they would sort of send them off somewhere else with a recommendation because they didn't want, um, they didn't want their reputation to be hurt by the mm -hmm. fact that they had predatory male teachers. Um, and, and I remember reading it and just immediately thinking like, oh, this is my next play. Like there's, there's no question that this mm -hmm. is my next play. And, um, and I wrote it really quickly. I think I wrote it, um, in like a season, like in, um, from like October until January in the fall of 2016. Um, so also write... oh, so this was before Trump got elected. You yeah, I was writing it while Trump. Okay. Yeah, during, I was writing it at the end of. Yeah, I basically started writing it like at near election day, mm -hmm. and then mm -hmm. um, and it just sort of like like I once I had the and the structure just sort of like came to me very quickly. Like the idea of um, have like tracking this man's life from being a sort of 23-year-old new teacher to being sort of in his early 40s and sort of what that, like how, how that is allowed to happen by these schools. Um, but also the way that the women, the young women sort of respond to him mm -hmm. and, and how it's different when he's 23 mm. than it is when he's 41. And at the time I had recently broken up with a man in his early 40s, um, who dated a lot of younger women. And so I think that that was also in my head, this idea of men who don't always um, sort of age in their relationships. They just sort of stay the same age. And, um, and then it all, and then it, and then um, like, I think I went to, I took myself to Rhode Island for like a, four-day writing retreat alone over New Year's that year. Um, and I didn't finish it, but I um, finished it, like, the weekend after mm -hmm. the Women's March, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, so it really does feel like this document of that period of time. Yeah. Um, and then it's been really interesting to work on it with actresses of different ages. Mm. Mm -hmm. Um I've done a workshop of it with college students mm -hmm. and um, their reaction to him was very different from doing it with actresses in their like late twenties, early thirties. Um, Ooh, how so? Like, yeah. Well, the, the direct, there's, there's one director that I've worked with on this and, um, at one point in rehearsal, they asked the actresses when we when we realized that Dan is a bad guy. And the um, there's one sort of older actress in the in the play, and then there are um, there were these college students, and the older actress was like, oh, like, you know, like page seven or whatever, right? There's this like creepy thing he says at page seven. And um, for most of the girls in college who were, I think, like 19, 
were like, oh, I guess when like he breaks up with the girl right before she's about to graduate, that's pretty bad. And that's like, he's 40. Mm-hmm. Like it's like, it is bad, but like there's, there's worse, you know, it's like, but it was just interesting to see like it was that, it like the way in which um, he, like he could be predatory. Yeah. Even, <laughs> you know, even like if you, if you like looked at who, like what these, how, how these young women were thinking about him, like he was still charming mm-hmm. up until the point that like he really hurt someone. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was fascinating. And that was really, uh, it sort of made the play feel like it was worth doing yeah. in a way yeah. um, to sort of have that response from the actresses. But here you are, you know, in Corsicana, sort of making work, and, and, but it's sort of in a private setting, surrounded by like two other artists in different mediums. And I hear you guys have been making a lot of bread. So one of you has been making bread, and yeah. you guys have been watching Bridgerton. Yeah. And, you know, tell me what it's like, the personal aspect of making the work beyond just, you know, doing the research or doing the planning for the writing. I mean, I, I always love being at residencies with other people who do different things um, and, and being able to sometimes even just like be, a, like be a fly on the wall in a conversation about something I don't know much about um, or like learn a lot about different, different things that I don't know much about and the things that, um, like hearing things that I'm like, oh, maybe I'll remember that for something else. Um, that that has always been something that I really enjoy, and I think that it also sort of takes your brain out of yourself um, and allows you to sort of see a bigger picture and not sort of be so focused on the work. Um, but it is it is interesting because like I you know I haven't been in either of the studio either of the other studios. Um, oh wow! I haven't seen really any of the work that Tom and Cecil have been doing. I've eaten the bread. <laughs> um, but, but other than that, yeah, it's like we all sort of have our little... Um, and so it does feel like as a writer, everything feels so private mm-hmm. because it's all just like on my computer. Mm-hmm. Like no one can see what I'm doing, but it also feels like I'm not seeing what they're doing mm-hmm. either. And so it's like we all have our little separate spaces. I've been at residencies where... That's not the case, and you can see everyone's beautiful artwork, like everywhere. Is that intimidating? It's so intimidating because then you're like, I like, I ended up like deciding to become a visual artist on that residency <laughs> because everyone else had these studios with all this like colorful stuff everywhere, and I was like, well, I'm gonna put stuff up in my studio, and I'm gonna start watercoloring and making collage poetry. And then all of a sudden I had all this stuff up and I felt like I was one of them. Yeah. (laughs) I want to fit in. I want to make beautiful (laughs) things. (laughs) Yeah. Well, tell me about some of these prose poems that you hinted at that you've been writing while in Corsicana. Yeah, I I mean, I've written like two. It's not like I've gone crazy with the prose poems, but but I have had a very interesting experience of... um, of going for runs in in Corsicana and um, and recognizing that that there aren't very many people going for runs and feeling like I 
um, not that I like, it's just, it's just an interesting experience um, to, it's an interesting way to sort of see a place um, okay. and, and see what I notice and some things change. Um, some things have changed, like some, like certain houses have taken down Trump signs since, um, mm -hmm. since I arrived. Mm -hmm. Um, and I get chased by dogs a lot, which is, um, which has happened a lot of times, like a bunch of dogs have chased me. Um, and cutting down some of those minutes on that mile. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's sort of like, well, I don't, I don't know how to. Um, I don't know how to help you, dog. Like, I can't, like I, I, you, I know you probably just want to play with me, or you're defending your your territory. But um, and I, like, I don't, they don't scare me. But I, I did. I, the first piece that I wrote was about um, running, and this woman, and these two dogs came came running after me, and this woman getting out of her car was like, "Are oh, those your dogs?" I was like, "I obviously those are not my dogs. I'm going for a run, not with my dogs." off leash following me that would not make any sense um so it was sort of just about like the way that it uh the way that this thing that feels very um normal to me like going for a run is something that I do but to have that feel very different in a different place mm -hmm. sort of felt like an interesting jumping off point for um exploring how I feel about being here mm -hmm. um yeah. and then I think but I do try, I don't write a lot of poetry. And then, but then when I do, I feel like I need to really like, especially when I'm residencies, I'm like, I have to write a poem a week. <laughs> like, that's what I'm gonna force myself to do. I'm gonna like figure out something to write something about. Um, so yeah, it's been dogs and running. Dogs and running, yeah. Well, I, I, I guess I have one other question. You know, in one of your plays, um, Damascus, it's in Syria. You said, it, or not you, but the main character said, you know, nobody ever said Vienna, why Vienna? And I, but people do say, why Corsicana? You mm -hmm. know, I just moved here, you know, when I did my residency, people were always asking, you know, why Corsicana? Why Corsicana? And so I'm going to ask, Corsicana? Why Corsicana? Um, I, I've never, this is my first time in Texas. And um, I was really interested in how being in a small town in Texas would inform um, particularly the San Hutchinson play, even though they feel mm -hmm. very different from one another. Mm -hmm. I think that the, I always think better or think differently when I'm, in a place that's outside my sort of normal comfort zone. Yeah. And um and that felt like this felt like a place that would that would be that for me. Yeah. Um and yeah, I mean like I've been I've been in like the mountains of New Hampshire for the last 9 months and to sort of be in the sort of like flat <laughs> flat Texas mm -hmm. um has been very different. Mm -hmm. And um and to not have people on the street, um, and to have lots of cars, like it just—it's a different. Um, it feels very different, in both a way I was expecting and also in a way I wasn't expecting. Well, thanks for talking with me. Yeah. Okay.
It's been great. You're welcome. It's been fun. Yeah. While theaters have suffered during the pandemic, Kate has continued innovating, developing original works for both Instagram and Zoom. You can watch her play Damascus, It's in Syria on Instagram. Join us next month as we talk with writer and ceramicist Marion Bull about her book based on her life growing up in a magic troupe. In the meantime, you can sign up for our monthly newsletters featuring updates, meditations, and marginalia from Residency Life in Corsicana. Find out more on our website at CorsicanaResidency.org. Stick around to hear Kate Mully read an excerpt from her play, Damascus, It's in Syria. You learn one morning when you're at work that he has moved back to New York. It's a text from a mutual friend, the one who got married years ago when you last really saw him, and you look at it in shock. You have the kind of day job now that is good for writers. You have access to a printer and healthcare, and you are surrounded by people who support your work outside your work. You don't talk about your life with them. You still find you don't like revealing too many things about yourself with strangers because it makes you uncomfortable. It makes you cough even though you don't need to cough. You have developed some mild anxiety in the past seven years, and most of it is manageable, but sometimes it's not. And when you get that text, you know you have to go upstairs to that bathroom that most people use to take a shit in private, and you hope that it doesn't smell like someone else's shit when you go in there, because you need to breathe. And you open the door and thank whichever god or goddess you don't quite believe in that it doesn't. You sit on the tile of the bathroom, hoping that it's been cleaned recently, and you feel things that you didn't know you could still feel. There's that burning in your stomach, and the wave of nausea paired with a cold sweat coming out of every pore, and you just sit for who knows how long. You return to your desk, eventually, and act as if nothing has happened, as if you went out for a coffee, and maybe you even go buy a coffee to create the illusion that that's what you did with that time. And you hope that you can get through the day without another episode. You take the next day off from work. You've never done that before. You've always been very reliable, a reliable five-ish minutes late to work, train dependent. But you decide to take a personal day. In high school, people called them mental health days and you silently scoffed at that phrase because it seemed idiotic. And now we use the term self-care, and sometimes it means watching Netflix and eating ice cream, and sometimes it means scheduling an emergency session with your therapist, who looks at you with sympathy and kindness when you tell her all of the things you had not yet told her about him, about that time in your life, about. And then you go home and crawl into bed and finally, 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 allow yourself to cry about everything.